Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Master Investors Podcast. Today, I'm joined by two very special guests to discuss the fintech sector in the UK. It's a sector that's not really been tapped into by retail investors up to now, but I'm sure that's all going to change in future. It's a massively exciting sector. Expect huge things from it in the future. So here's the podcast, and I hope you enjoy listening. But before we get started, please take a few moments to listen to our disclaimer. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. The information in this podcast is not a personal recommendation for any particular investment. If you are unsure about the suitability of an investment, you should speak to an authorised financial advisor. Past performance is not a reliable indicator of future returns. Hi and welcome to the show everybody. My name is James Faulkner, I'm the editor of Master Investor Magazine. Uh, I'm joined by Tim Levine, who's a partner and CEO at Augmentum Fintech, and that's an investment trust that um, is focused on the fintech sector, primarily in the UK. I'm also joined by Richard Wilson, who's the CEO of Interactive Investor, which um, I believe is now the UK's second largest direct consumer platform for investors. That is correct. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for joining us today. You're welcome. Good to see you. Just to kick off then, give us an overview of, of the fintech sector. What, what is fintech for, for a start? Well, fintech can be whatever you want it to be, uh, to be honest, and it's become a really overused word. Ultimately, for us, it's businesses that are fundamentally disrupting, disintermediating the traditional financial services sector. It's you know, been an industry that's evolved dramatically over the past 10 years and one in which here in the UK we are the global leader, you know, one that still has a long way to go in terms of evolution. And what, what sort of um, aspects of the, of the UK economy make it um, a leader in this sector then? What, what, what edge does the UK have? Well, we're sitting here on the fringes of the city of London and you know, hundreds of years of, of history has you know, really cemented the UK's place as the global heart of financial services. And I think if you look at where a lot of innovation over the past 20 years has come in technology, it's come out of Silicon Valley. When it comes to financial services, which is a complicated, heavily regulated industry where California doesn't have that DNA, you have seen very little disruption coming from there. And you know what you don't have are 23-year-olds sitting in their garage in California dreaming of disrupting the asset management industry. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's a very different proposition. It's a I mean. It is, it's just, and it's really hard. And regulation is a real inhibitor. Uh, and in particular in the US, you've got 50 state regulators and multiple federal ones. So yeah. if you're a fintech entrepreneur, you can't just launch your business. You've got a long journey to come. And I think here in the UK, we have that DNA, uh, in particular in London. We've got the capital, but also we've got And we've had an environment over the past decade where you have relatively a pretty progressive regulator who's embraced innovation, competition, as long as it's in the interest of the consumer. You've got a central bank uh, that has been very much on the front foot. And you've had successive governments that have also embraced the changes in financial services post-global financial crisis uh, alongside that pool of talent, that availability of capital, all those factors have really combined effectively to you know, make London and the UK in general the global epicentre. Uh, and we've just seen, despite the backdrop of, of Brexit over the last 12 months, you know, record funding coming into this sector, nearly $5 billion yeah. of uh, capital coming into the, uh, into the UK fintech sector. 
read that last year the UK attracted more fintech investment than the other top 10 European countries combined, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> and I think, you know, we've built a considerable uh, head of steam, but we can't be complacent as well. We've got now, this year we'll have a new head of the FCA, we'll have a new head of the Bank of England and we've got a new government. So it's important for us as an industry to continue to work with all those constituent parts and remain on the front foot, attract capital to the sector because we still require more capital, more investment uh, in order to kind of maintain our lead. And it's important just to, just to highlight that the, the UK wealth market is um, the world's second largest at between five and six trillion pounds. Um, it, it punches a fairly significant hole in global financial wealth. And there's been a significant amount of action over the last pre-Brexit action in Europe and the UK specifically about injecting competition in the banking arena, which has opened some doors in terms of disruption. And of course, significant change in the underlying long-term savings regulation, which has been pushing responsibility towards the individual in terms of long-term savings and long-term risk management. And Richard, from the perspective of somebody who manages a, what can be considered a fintech business, what impact do you think Brexit will have on the sector? Well, the important thing, the headline for Brexit is removing what's been a very long period of uncertainty, which has got in the way of all sorts of investment decisions for far too long. Providing a stable political environment and clear policy is the most important thing, both from a at a micro level and from a, a larger investment decision point of view. So that we're 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 seeing already I mean, post post the election in December an uptick in activity, um, both from our our savers, but also seeing inbound investment appetite from elsewhere. So that's the biggest thing. We will see, as Tim mentions, a significant changes afoot in terms of leadership um, in the regulatory and government arena. We will see what comes out um, in the coming months um, in terms of policy direction. But the big ticket for me is a stable political position, which um, is the first ingredient. And Tim, um, the sector is not readily accessible, is it really, to, to retail investors, or it's not being historically. Why are there so few options for retail investors when it comes to investing in this asset class? Well, I think one of the motivations that we had a momentum in terms of becoming the first publicly listed fintech fund was exactly that challenge. How do we open up this asset class, this emerging asset class, to retail investors alongside public you know, institutional investors who have a lot of interest of consumers of fintech products? believe in the impending and ongoing disruption in the space. And there was a real lack of choice. And I think what we've also seen in the past five years in particular has been a wall of capital coming to these companies, these tech, fintech growth companies at a later stage when historically the natural next step for them would have been to go public. But the likes of SoftBank or large sovereign wealth or even private equity are looking to access these growth opportunities. And as a result, this kind of decision of a CEO or founder of a fintech business, do I want to go public now or do I want to stay private, really focus on carrying on building my business without the public glare um, of the market, has become quite compelling. And so 
what that means for public market investors is, you know, are they going to get the same level of opportunities that they had in the past? I don't think they are because of this increased amount of private capital. And secondly, even if they do get that opportunity, they're getting it much later on in the cycle. And arguably, that's when a lot of the value um, has been achieved. So they're not being able to benefit what we would call the J curve. They're coming in right at the top. And so the opportunity for us to give diversified exposure across a large number of high growth and exciting fintechs where we can get them much earlier, um, you know, hopefully presents one opportunity for private investors to, um, you know, get some exposure in the public markets. And you're in quite a concentrated portfolio, is it about 20, 15, 20? We have 18, yeah, 18 companies, uh, the vast majority in the UK and London, although we have a pan-European strategy. We just invested in our first business in Germany out of Berlin. Um, And there are some really interesting opportunities beyond the UK as well. Um, So, you know, no question we will continue to diversify. But... For us, as an approach, we are quite active in our company. So this is not a prey and spray strategy. This is a strategy where we would look at near on a thousand businesses a year and invest in four or five. So the hit rate is extremely low. And of those four or five, we would take an active role on the board uh, early on, really in helping drive and shape strategy and helping them where, where we can. So give us a flavour of uh, the, the portfolio and what, what companies are you currently investing in? So rather than going through line by line, obviously we've been a long-term investor in, in Interactive Investor, um, but which is now what we would define as a very established and successful business. Um, so it requires less of our uh, active, uh, active involvement. But you know, a theme that we've been really focused on has been SMEs and looking at how poorly served they have been by the traditional players over recent years, whether that's in the setting up of accounts or uh, you know, borrowing money to help them help them grow. So we backed a business called Tide uh, some 18 months ago, which has become you know, the fastest growing SME challenger banking proposition in the market. And you know, we experienced it and we talked to many uh, emerging uh, businesses. The opening of a bank account should be very straightforward, but for some it was taking not just weeks but months. And the ability to open an account in a short period of time, let's call it you know within 24 hours, although time would say it would take far shorter than that, and focusing on what you really do best, which is running your business and not being distracted by uh, you know back office challenges. So for us, you know, these are opportunities that, you know, still have a long way to go, but are really solving significant pain points. And whether it's iWaka, which is has really taken the place of uh, overdrafts where banks have stepped away from allowing a lot of uh, SMEs to, uh, you know, have that immediate uh, working capital uh, impact. They've, you know, really grown that business tremendously over the past couple of years. And the likes of Receipt Bank, which we uh, recently backed as well. Um, which works with over 50,000 bookkeepers and north of 300,000 small businesses as well to really streamline the management of their of their back office as well. So I think ultimately for us, working with businesses that allow SMEs to get back to what they want to do, which is focus 100% on, the, uh, on their business and growing uh, and protecting their business rather than you know, focusing their time on admin. Uh, you know, the more we can use and leverage technology in a cost-effective way, the better. And what's, what's your typical um, sort of investee company profile then? How do you go about filtering these companies and, you know, 
allocating capital? Yeah, I mean, I think we invest across the stages from Series A and later, um, but we're looking for an extraordinary management team, a business that is, you know, truly disrupting their space and ideally a market leader or the market leading disruptor in that space. So whether it's bullion vault uh, in the precious metals market, uh, which allows retail investors to buy and hold silver, gold, platinum or Fairwell, which has become you know, the first digital player in what we define as death services. So wills, probate, you know, these are businesses that you know, are offering consumers a really compelling digital platform at the lowest possible price. And I think if I go back to Interact Investor, which really had been around for a long time, I don't know, quite mid-90s, Richard. 94, I think this is our 25th anniversary this year. When when we looked at that business in its, I don't know how many iterations, it was a bit of a digital dinosaur, but we felt it was a sleeping giant. And what we liked about it, it was the low-cost proposition in the market. And this was back in 2014 in our previous fund. But we felt that the you know the market leaders in the space were still lacking real kind of digital innovation and their pricing wasn't particularly compelling and there was a wide open space for someone to come in and you know deliver a really value driven product uh, in a compelling way and i think you know what richard and the team have done over the past two or three years in particular has you know accumulate a really significant business and you know become the champion in terms of kind of a low cost and increasingly strong customer service as well. I think that was one area Richard and I talked many years ago. How do we improve not only the user experience, but the customer service too? Uh, and as a customer, but also talking extensively to a number of customers as well, that's one area which I think they've really uh, excelled on over the past two years as well, which is incredibly important. And I think the, the sort of um, the investing platform sector in particular is kind of ripe for disruption, isn't it, at the moment? Because um, it's, it's sort of been quite static for quite a long time, I think. It's a quite a commoditized market as well, isn't it? So what what sort of um, comp- competitive edges do you think you, you guys have in the sector? Well, it's an interesting point um, you, you, you raise. It's like saying that all cars have got four wheels, so they're all the same. <laughs> um, well, there's two views of that. Number one, within our existing space, which will, people will describe as the DIY investing space, um, we bring two or three things which are quite different. Number one is a simple flat fee pricing model. So with a basic £10 a month, you get um, all of our services. That means A, you know what it costs you, and B, the more that you save, the more you keep. Mm-hmm. Most of the platforms out there, largely because they could um, take a chunk of your, a percentage of your savings, no matter how they are, uh, how big they are, which um, we don't think is right. Um, and um, it doesn't um, it doesn't incentivize um, the investor to to invest more. Two, and it happens to be part of the um, our new place in the world. We are recognised to be the best platform for global investing. Um, so our access to global markets and our multi currency setup means that you can choose um, to invest across the world. Um, again, for the, the same simple um, um, charge. And lastly. We have the benefit, a long legacy of journalistic and, and, and analysis, which provides fresh insights to make better informed choices. But that kind of misses the point. The self-directed space is about 5% of the private wealth market in the UK. Mm-hmm. We're growing quite strongly. The big story is the, the, 
the effectively the rip-off that um, most of the insurance company wealth managers expose their customers to, which are not just, I mean, we're talking people competing about, we're competing with AJ Bell or Hargreaves, like somehow they're the good and bad guys there. The insurance companies, and we're talking 10 times the price for almost no choice and being unable to leave. You can't even figure out how much you're being charged. But this is most people's experience of investing, isn't it? That most people would invest through... And part of our job is to change that. So you might think that when we're competing that we measure it by, gosh, are we winning, losing versus the other two or three guys? In fact, our biggest source of new customers is actually is from insurance companies. Those who have figured out or working on actually that um, I can get a better outcome, get a better service, and I can get a pay a fraction of the cost. Why am I with insurance company, company XYZ? There's also, of course, the fairly well-known wealth managers who don't just do that, but they'll actually charge you nearly 9% or 10% of your total wealth and lock you in. And they, they write you nice letters with gold leaf, but in terms of service, um, they're quite well known for not delivering that. So we see a huge opportunity to transform um, the uh, UK consumer investment market. We see the ability to bring greater confidence to um, the UK consumer and give them direct control of their financial future so that they can keep the rewards from their hard-earned money and their savings and we make a sensible return for providing what is a quality service. It's that simple. I think that's right. I mean, I think for us, when we look at the enormous opportunity in wealth management and how little the incumbents have evolved digitized, the only reason that they've managed to stay at the levels they are is because there is a lot of inertia in switching and capital is really sticky. And even when the inertia goes, as Richard has said, the cost and challenges of moving that money can be really considerable. And that is the major inhibitor as to why we've not seen greater shifts. But the genie is long out of the bottle. And it's not a question of if, it's when and how quickly. And I guess our job as an investor is not to be right. We've just got to be right at the, th- at the right time as well and not be too early. So you would have seen uh, and read a lot about robo-advisors and actually very few ha- have had any real success. It's taken a long time for them to accumulate assets. And the assets they've been accumulating have been often of millennials who love the idea of transparency, a great user interface, but they haven't yet built up their asset base. So they're great customers over the long term, but they take quite a long time to become really valuable customers as well. Do you guys see a shift in terms of people's willingness to sort of take responsibility for looking after their own investments, especially since, you know, the changes to the, the pension legislation and things like that? Well, I think there are, there are two things. Number one, um, from a general um, expectation standpoint, more people expect to be able to do more digitally than in the past and more people trust the internet than they did in the past. So it's becoming normal um, to to make decisions um, online. Um, so that part of the behavior is something that we just need to keep up with. People who bank online, with, I mean, if you've got to remember 10 years ago, the iPhone didn't exist. Now, frankly, the idea of going to your branch is kind of anathema to most people. <laughs> so there's an expectation to be able to actually get um, a service um, online. If you can't get it, you don't use that service, number one. And, and more broadly, um, we have the fact that people don't have a choice. 
It used to be, again, you had a, a defined, what was called a defined benefit pension, which basically meant it was your company's problem, your employer, you didn't have a clue. Every year you get some strange letter from some um, strange trust giving an update which was two years out of date. Now it's your problem. You carry the risk for, do you have enough money to survive on in retirement? We just completed what I believe is the, the largest um, survey of um, British retirement that's been done in the UK. And only 14% of women expected to protect their standard living post-retirement. So there's, we've got this great, um, uh, pent up both problem and demand for better solutions for us as people who are living a lot longer in an environment which has much lower inflation interest rates and you need to think very hard about how you're going to manage the long term so that you can have the lifestyle that you hoped for. Mm. We've also had auto, auto enrollment which is I suppose has given some people their first experience of having some sort of investment yep. in equity markets. So, I mean, that's another sort of impetus for people Indeed. to start taking control of their own finances, I suppose. And we're behind in other parts of the world, in the US, the 401k, I think it was introduced in the 80s. So in terms of kind of people's dinner time chatter, um, that's something that's been um, part of their day-to-day conversation for a lot longer than the UK. It's becoming part of the, the pub conversation in the UK is where you got your ISA, where you got your pension, what am I gonna do next? Um, it's it's our problem now rather than some invisible um, fund somewhere that the company keeps topping up. That doesn't exist anymore. No, I think that's I think that's absolutely right. And when we talk about these defined benefit pension schemes, you know, one of the challenges is so many of them are in deficit and they require real growth. And the question you have to ask yourself as an investor in one of these schemes is who is managing that scheme and what are they going to do in order to deliver you know, a much needed pension over time. And you know, we've seen it with the pension schemes here in particular in the UK, they have a real reluctance um, to invest in the best performing asset class over the past decade, which is private equity and venture capital. And you know, we've talked to many a pension fund, in some cases have a desire to do it, but the rules around what they can and can't do don't permit them to invest in this in this asset class as well. So there are some structural and regulatory challenges as well that need to be addressed there. So if I'm an investor, young investor today, I want to take control uh, and use the very best tools that are out there that didn't exist a decade ago and have total transparency of what I'm paying and how uh, my uh, you know, providers are performing, and if I don't like it, then I can change, and that's ultimately what businesses such as I and others are bringing. But mm-hmm. there is a long way to go, as Richard said. What five percent yeah. um, of our market is uh, is in the DIY space, and you know we you know we need as a as an industry to ensure that grows. We want more people to take control of their own finances. It kind of brings me on to my next question, which is um, for Richard: what what is interactive investor doing to kind of broaden the, the scope of investing out to kind of like millennials and also also to women because men are still much more likely to invest and take control of their own finances than, than females, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a good, good point. We've had a number of initiatives um, which are directed at, at both those areas to try and broaden our, our appeal. One of the themes which is, is very 
present as we read every day is the very real interest now in ethical investing and that's something which appeals directly both to um, the younger investor and to, to women and we've um, taken some quite um, innovative and forward-looking approaches to that. We have three specific um, ethical lists which we, we promote. Um, one is a long ethical list, one is short, um, this makes it easier to choose called the ACE30 that's been very successful and a, a growth ethical um, which is particularly um, uh, attractive to the, the, the young, less confident investor. And the second thing that we, is part of our everyday life is I think the majority actually of our editorial and um, investment leadership happens to be women. So um, I may have a reverse diversity issue there, but um, so in terms of um, uh, focusing on a broad array of, of, um, uh, of views, um, that's um, actually kind of counterintuitive, but we have actually a, a, a significant proportion of our leadership are women and we've had and continue to have um, customer conferences where we make sure there's there's always um, at least one woman speaker and indeed in the summer we had a, a conference focused specifically on starter investing forward and we'll be doing more of those so there's a whole array of different practical things that um, that we we are doing our research however does does indicate that there is not a material difference in the actual investing behavior of women versus men. Um, there's a, possibly a, a marginal preference um, for investment trusts and FTSE 100 compared to um, geezers. That may, that may indicate a slightly more sensible, um, mature view of investing, we don't know, but it's not a big significant difference. So clearly, the more that we broaden the appeal, the more the, the world moves towards passive and collective investing and the more that we need to appeal to a broader audience which clearly is both a younger demographic and um, and women so we're on it well, what's your view of the the passive revolution then because there's been a new shift to passives haven't there, in, in recent times and i just wondered what your perspective is on that it's it's not our job to um to push one particular argument. It's our job to present um, equal trust. We're as the class agnostic, so you'll see in our um, Super 60, unlike the majority of um, the rated uh, lists that some of our uh, competition have put out there, we've got a we've got no prejudice whether it's active or passive, whether it's an investment trust or a fund. Um, they appeal to different parts of the audience. The reality is, of course, and certainly it's true in a, in a lower interest rate environment, that passives have got less costs to run and they're becoming um, run more intelligently. Um, and the, there are a number of active in investors out there which outperform passive, but not that many. So um, we expect to see continued growth in the, in the passive space, driven partially by, um, by a cost question. And that will continue, but again, our job is not to to um, stand in front of that and say why or wrong. Our, our job is to provide informed choice um, to our, our investors. Um, just to finish off, then, guys, I want to ask you both to make a prediction. Over the next five years, what do you think is the biggest change that we'll see that fintech is going to kind of have on society? Um, my view is very simple: is that um, today we've got little fragments of people's financial lives um, you can um, you can manage on an app. You've got bits of your banking life, bits of your um, borrowing life, bits of your investing life. 
um, step by step your ability to run your financial life um, off your phone for a much lower price will um, will increase. That will mean that financial advice will will start to get um, collapsed, asset management will start to get collapsed, and we'll end up with at some point, whether it, and the timing is is in the gift of the gods, there will be a financial platform um, which will um, supersede the, the existing bad words like banks and brokers, and that will be a, a platform that serves your day-to-day needs as well as your long-term savings investment. The exact timing, who knows, because I think, as Tim mentioned earlier, the, the, one of the biggest challenges in the industry is inertia. The more 85% of private wealth in the UK is held in the over 55s, um, they don't hop around providers every day, so it takes some time. Um, but whether it's five, six, seven, ten, whatever happens, we'll see the, a, a dramatic change in the industry. And ultimately, that will mean that the customers have a much better choice, much better service, and a far lower cost. A, which they understand, and B, which means that most of their, their savings they keep rather than give away to wealth managers. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Transparency is something that historically wasn't there in financial services. And I think the advent of open banking is one of the key catalysts to making that happen, and, and that will eventually flow through. Gartner just released a report that said in 10 years, 80% of incumbents Uh, will be extinct. Now, that might be uh, an extreme view, but there is no question that financial services companies today will not be the majority of financial services companies over the next decade. We are going to build some extraordinary new businesses in the space. It's going to become more fragmented. And what you will see is in order for a lot of these incumbents, traditional incumbents that arguably are very slow moving and investing a huge amount of capital into keeping their old systems and infrastructure going, will either have to acquire these emerging uh, new players, which could be a fantastic outcome for, for investors, or will find themselves losing significant market share. And you know, if you believe that incumbents can stay as they are, then you're definitely betting against history. So we will, you know, we'll continue to see change, but ultimately, and at the end of the day, that's going to be a significant benefit to the consumers, which is ultimately, you know, what we all want. Um, and it will be a survival of those that provide the best possible solution. You heard it first here, incumbents watch out. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you very much. Don't forget, you can access more great content, including Master Investor magazine at masterinvestor.co.uk. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can support us by hitting the subscribe button and by leaving a review. If you've got any suggestions about who you'd like us to interview or topics you'd like us to cover, please send us an email at info at masterinvestor.co.uk. Thanks for listening.